Our special guest today is Lynn Alden of Lynn Alden Strategy. You're watching episode six of Raise Your Average. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of advisoranalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Welcome, everyone. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor of AdvisorAnalyst.com. My co-hosts are Mike Philbrick and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. And our very special guest is Lynn Alden of Lynn Alden Strategy. Um, for those of you who don't know it, Lynn is one of the most profound macroeconomic thinkers in the market today. And used to be, you know, you, you read four or five macro pieces you would read from various sources. And then you'd sort of put your own ideas together, or find a way to connect them. And what I, what I found really uh, sort of exciting about reading and listening to Lynn's macroeconomic framework was that she just, you know, Lynn's already doing that. Like you're already, you know, you know, you're already taking all the, all the moving parts and connecting them. So, so Lynn, welcome to the show. I'm really excited. I think we're all really excited to have this conversation. Please welcome Lynn Alden of Lynn Alden Strategy. Hi, Lynn. Yeah, how thanks. are you? <laughs> I'm good. Thanks so much for having me here. And, you know, I, I totally agree. I mean, basically, we're in an environment now where we have so much information. And so the value is trying to find ways to synthesize that information, filter out some of it, interpret it. Uh, and, yeah, that's what I try to do. And also sources that I rely on, I, I look for, for, you know, people that can kind of take what's important out of the, the massive amount of information that we all are just in, in like, covered with. Yeah, well... Uh, yeah, and, and I love, I love the, you look at, <laughs> go ahead, Mike, go ahead. <laughs> it's okay. Um, I, I love the way Lynn's, um, investment strategy, uh, website is laid out as well. So you've got the beginner, the intermediate and, and sort of the, the more experienced global macro themes. So if anyone hasn't, uh, had a chance to, uh, look at Lynn Alden investment strategy, there's a lot more there than what we may discuss today. I think we're going to try and keep it at the higher level, at the more experienced level, the, the, get a, get a, a glimpse into Lynn's, um, sort of global macro framework and some of the implications that, you know, fiscal policy and monetary policy are having on asset prices today and what the potential um, outcomes can be and how you might think about preparing your portfolio for that. So we're going to stay on the experience side, but I would also say there's there's lots of uh, fodder in, in her um, investment musings beyond that. So yeah. for those who haven't had a chance to check it out, they should go and do that for sure. That's great. So, so Lynn, I think, I think it might make sense to start from your beginnings, talk about, um, how you got started, how, how you came into the investing world, into the, into the world of finance. And, um, and then we could get into your macroeconomic framework. Absolutely. Yeah. My, my background's kind of a, it's kind of a weird path to get here, but it's not super weird because a lot of engineers do go into finance, but uh, so for people that aren't familiar with me, my background is a blend of engineering and finance. Uh, and, the, 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 you know, going back further than that, I was always interested in investing. So before I went to any sort of university, uh, it was just kind of a passion of mine. It, it just kind of came out of nowhere in a sense. Uh, but when it came time to go to university, I focused on engineering uh, because my other interest was technology and the application of technology. Uh, and so I, I pursued that for several years. 
Um, but I was always investing in the side, including, you know, I had an earlier blog where I, w- I would write about different types of stocks out there. I eventually sold that to a, to a larger publishing company. Uh, and it was in uh, late 2016 that I decided to launch Lindahl Investment Strategy, uh, which is a more rigorous kind of approach, uh, you know, more professional approach to uh, basically provide research to people, both for retail investors and for institutional or, you know, professional money managers. Uh, and so my overall approach is, uh, you know, mainly to focus on kind of quantified methods of what's going on. Uh, I like, you know, numbers more so than narratives, although I, you know, I try to, you know, make sure I understand what's happening qualitatively as well. Uh, but a lot of what I try to do is identify bottlenecks, ident- identify big turning points, things like that, and pay attention to multiple asset classes to find things that you can uh, rebalance into, that you can basically lean into things that are out of favor and kind of rotate out of things that become very, uh, you know, expensive or consensus. Uh, and my, my primary kind of, you know, asset class of choice is, is equities because, you know, with equities, of course, you can you can dabble in multiple different types of assets indirectly because you can, for example, invest in, in commodity producers. Or you can invest in, in stocks that benefit from higher rates or stocks that benefit from lower rates and, and kind of all these different levers that, that we can pull. But I also go into other asset classes as well. And so overall, that that's how I approach things. It, you know, a lot of people read the work and they they... They, you know, a lot of engineers resonate with it because it's it's kind of like it lays out what's happening kind of step by step and takes a hard problem and kind of, you know, my philosophy is to break it down into small problems, solve them independently, put them back together. And so that's really how I approach global macro. And and overall, my, you know, the, what I say I do is that basically it's it's equity investing with a global macro overlay. And so I do go into in, into individual companies uh, as but I also, you know, always take a step back and, and remain macro aware of, of what I'm doing. And how have you found that? I mean, obviously, it's been a very active macro world that we have been existing in since 2017. And, you know, I think I think the way that you explain some of the structural relationships uh, in, in such an approachable way is uh, very informative and helps the investors sort of get their head wrapped around what what the linkages are between, you know, monetary policy steps that are taken, how they, they inf- affect mon- uh, money supply, and now this new implication with respect to maybe fiscal policy taking a larger role. Maybe you want to jump into your your overarching global macro framework at the moment and the, the levers that are at play and how they might be impacting uh, steps that the Fed may have to take, they may not want to take, or, or corners that they're going to be forced into. Why don't you share that with us? Yeah, absolutely. And you're totally right. This is a very macro-heavy environment. And in many ways, that's why I had to adopt an increasingly you know, macro overlay to the type of work I was doing. It's not really the environment where you can just kind of put your head down and focus on individual stocks. You have to really kind of be aware of some of the big forces that can push them around, right? So last year alone, we had you know, the, the, the biggest economic shock in modern history, uh, followed by the, the, you know, the biggest monetary fiscal response in modern history. You have to go back to all the way to the World War II to find a, a you know a larger response, uh, and so uh, you know my overall framework kind of uh, combines a couple different elements. But I would say the largest influence has been Ray Dalio's long-term debt cycle uh, concept, and the way what you know what that is is basically that if you look at the normal business cycle, there's the short-term debt cycle, which is the normal five to ten-year business cycle that we're all familiar with. You know you have you have a you know uh, you have the previous recession, uh, then you have the recovery. Uh, you know, the, the, then, you know, we start to build up debt in the system again. You start to, you know, get more and more kind of, uh, you know, uh, euphoria among market participants. Uh, usually the Fed comes in or, you know, the other central banks come in and they start raising interest rates uh, to kind of put a break on that. 
And eventually some sort of catalyst happens. Uh, you know, we start to get slowing GDP and then uh, sometimes you kind of narrowly avoid a recession. Other times you have a, enough of a catalyst that we actually get a recession. Uh, and that, you know, we, the Federal Reserve has to cut interest rates. And, you know, usually there's some sort of fiscal response. And if you kind of put most of, you know, a bunch of those together over time, you'd expect it to be able to look like a sine wave of rising and falling debt, rising and falling interest rates. But it really doesn't quite work out like that uh, because each time, uh, basically, there's there's lower and lower interest rates and, and higher and higher leverage in the system as a percentage of GDP uh, because each each kind of um, end of cycle, uh, you know, they, they policymakers kind of intervene before it fully deleverages. It basically kind of leverage like deleverage like half the way and then kind of start building up leverage from there. And so when you, when you when you string several of those together for you know maybe five decades or more, eventually you run into a very different environment because eventually interest rates at zero, debt level becomes extremely high, uh, and some of those same tools that worked in previous cycles no longer work anymore uh, because you can only get so negative in terms of interest rates before it doesn't work. Uh, and so uh, that's where you start to see uh, you know even more unconventional policies. So first you see. Uh, you know, asset price purchases. Uh, you know, uh, you know, asset purchases by the central bank, where you do, they can do quantitative easing. Uh, in previous uh, eras, they would call it different things, but it's, it's a very similar process where you, uh, you know, basically uh, solidify the banking system. Uh, and then the the later step after that is large fiscal injections. Uh, so that could be uh, bailouts of corporations. Uh, that could be you know direct checks to people. That could be expanded unemployment benefits. That could be massive infrastructure spending. Whatever the case may be. That could be, you know, even it doesn't have to be spending either. It could be tax cuts. They're not balanced by any sort of, uh, you know, uh, spending reduction. Uh, and so that tends to be a very different environment. And so one of the risks that people can run into is that if they're assuming that, you know, recessions kind of follow the same sort of path, uh, you know, they could be caught off guard by the ending of a long-term debt cycle, which sometimes has very unintuitive outcomes uh, in many ways, like we saw last year, which is basically we saw this huge disconnect between asset prices and economic performance, in part because we had the largest, you know, fiscal stimulus uh, ever, you know, in, in modern history, kind of, you know, propping a lot of that up. And so overall, my approach is basically to, to look at the rate of change of the normal business cycle, but then also keep in mind that really long-term, uh, you know, long-term debt cycle of how, you know, basically to expect the unexpected uh, from policymakers when you start running into the zero bound and, when asset purchases start to become a big part of their toolkit. And so how are you seeing that play out today as, as you're looking at the, uh, the landscape? I think you're sort of on record as being more in the inflationary camp now, uh, less in the deflationary camp. And we've still got those fairly strong forces of deflation from debt and demographics and some productivity gains in technology. Um, and on the other side of that, we've got, you know, the the different inflationary forces that are that are coming into play. So so how are you seeing that struggle sort of play out? Yeah, that is. I think you put it really well. That basically there's two really powerful forces there. I mean, on one hand, you have te- you have deflation, you have uh, you know you have aging demographics, you have technology, you have offshoring, all these different levers that that make things cheap and that basically can can slow down growth and and basically suppress wages and and keep inflation at bay. On the other hand, we have you know if you look at the types of inflation. There's a big difference between what, say, commodities have been doing, you know, before last year, compared to, say, healthcare costs. You know, healthcare costs in many countries, especially the United States, we have we actually have the highest healthcare costs in the world down here. Uh, but basically, um, you know, uh, there's just so many forces on either side. 
Uh, and that was, you know, the case back, you know, in the previous long-term debt cycle as well. So the previous time we had, a, you know, the ending of a long-term debt cycle was the 1930s. Uh, and then, you know, it was bleeding into the 1940s. And they had a very similar environment there. So the 1930s were extremely de- uh, disinflationary. Uh, and it was only because of this, you know, massive policy response, as well as, you know, external factors uh, that you got that more inflationary kind of rebound out of it. And so we're kind of seeing, seeing a similar thing now where the 2010s, in many ways, were very disinflationary. We had a period of, of commodity oversupply. So most commodities were cheap. Uh, that helped keep a lot of kind of basic pricing down. Uh, we had a lot of outsourcing. So, you know, things like electronics and apparel kept getting cheaper and cheaper. And the real kind of worries were the services sector. So so anything where you're paying someone to do something, essentially, part, you know, whether it's education or healthcare, or even things that are unrelated because you're paying for their, you know, if, if you're hiring someone to do something for you, you're basically paying for their high healthcare and their high, you know, uh, educational costs as well. Uh, and so those areas were the part where we actually saw some some actual price increases. Uh, but going forward, you know, especially as we saw over the past year, the major tools that the policymakers have uh, to combat inflation uh, can become, you know, to combat deflation and create inflation can become increasingly aggressive as some of those other tools, uh, you know, basically fail to work. And so a lot of people thought, you know, a decade ago that quantitative easing would be inflationary. Uh, that was kind of the narrative back then. Uh, but what we saw last time, as well as the previous time in history when that was done, uh, is that basically increasing, you know, the, the base money is is not very inflationary because, you know, you're not necessarily increasing the broad money supply. You're not getting money into the hands of people. You're not having more money chase fewer goods. And so there's no real reason for it to be inflationary. At best, you can call it anti-deflationary in the sense that, it, you know, it, it prevents a bank collapse or or things like that. But it doesn't really just result in what we generally think of as as broad inflation. However, if you directly increase the broad money supply by quite a bit, uh, you know, through massive fiscal spending that is in large part monetized by the central bank, which is very different than what happened a decade ago, uh, then you're more at risk of inflation. It's still not guaranteed because you still have to, you know, you have to compare the magnitude of that increase in the, in the broad money supply compared to the various factors that are that are disinflationary and that, and that you know, uh, press down on monetary velocity. Uh, but overall, at least now you're in the game. Now you're now kind of inflation really is an option on the table, and it becomes this this you know tug of war between two forces. And so when I'm when I'm kind of looking out for potential inflation, what I'm most paying attention to is the the fiscal spending that's happening, and then you know how is that fiscal spending being financed? Is there real investors buying the bonds, or is a, are a lot of the bonds being bought by the banking system and the central bank? And then, you know, indirectly, then you can you can then, you know, watch the broad money supply go up and then see, you know, is, is most of that pooling in the upper classes or is it is it getting widely distributed? Uh, because, again, part of the reason why, uh, you know, uh, some of the increases over the past decade have not been very inflationary is because we've actually had, you know, a pretty substantial wealth concentration. Uh, and so a lot of that money kind of wound up in, in the top 10 percent or so and therefore it winds up in financial assets. Uh, rather than in consumer goods. And, you know, the, I guess the last point I would talk about is that a lot of economists, you know, when people are talking about inflation, most people having that debate are, are looking at it from an economic perspective. Uh, and I rarely see them talk about the commodity cycle. Uh, so, we, you know, if you look back in history, we have this, you know, roughly 15-year commodity cycle. It varies. Uh, but basically, you know, you, you, you have a period of strong demand, uh, you know, commodity prices are high. That encourages a lot of, you know, producers to come and, and create new supply, you know, build new mines, find new new 
uh, reserves, whatever the case may be for that particular commodity. Uh, and then, you know, some sort of slowdown happens or just the sheer amount of new supply coming into the market kills the prices. Uh, and then you're left with a period of, of oversupply. Uh, but because a lot of those mines, like, you know, a copper mine takes a very, very long time from from finding the the reserve to, you know, basically making a, a, a an outputting mine. The same thing for a very big oil discovery or, you know, wh- you know whatever the, the commodity case may be, uh, there's that giant lag time. Uh, and so when you have that period where you're oversupplied and prices are low and it doesn't justify, uh, you know, uh, new sources coming online, uh, you know, that kind of sets the stage many years later for that inevitable bull market in commodities because you haven't invested enough. Uh, and so it's important that, you know, this, this disinflationary period that we've had over the past 10 years has taken place during a time of, of commodity oversupply. This started, you know, ever since about, you know, 2008. Uh, and uh, whereas now it looks like, you know, in some ways that might be coming to an end, especially when you look at the copper, uh, you know, where that where that is, because there's not a ton of new supply there. We have a, you know, pretty big forecast for, higher demand in the decades ahead. Uh, and then even with energy, which has been the most structurally oversupplied area, uh, we've actually had pretty weak CapEx for several years now. And then of course, 2020 killed a lot of the CapEx. And then we combine that with the fact that, you know, with, with ESG mandates, uh, some of the, the the financing that, for example, has financed unprofitable North American shale oil for the past decade uh, is not really there in, in the same way that it was maybe five, 10 years ago. And so we have a couple kind of variables coming together that potentially makes the 2020s a little bit more inflationary than than I think you know consensus would expect. Uh, but still, that hinges on you know that you know basically the policymakers are, are likely to continue doing larger fiscal stimulus than people expect. And so that that view can always change if you were to get a sharp change in in fiscal monetary policy. So you're getting kind of the double whammy of the the supply push inflation and the demand pull inflation, right? As maybe demand stays the same, but you're you're having a lack of supply from commodity producers, and you have this massive fiscal stimulus that, if done right, it goes to everybody's pockets, and these are consumers that are going to spend most of the money that they get versus the upper echelon, mostly just hodling it, putting it into mm-hmm. their investment accounts and um, and uh, real estate prices, right? So it seems to be like an interesting pivot point from an inflationary perspective. Uh, it could always change, of course, depending on how they, how things turn out. But it is it, it is something that I think investors, I just saw a, um, a poll recently of the amount of consumers that are worried about inflation, and it was like 75%. I, I don't remember the last time that I saw something like that. Of course, that's the, the macro side of me makes me feel like I should take the opposite side of that trade. <laughs> yeah, I think it's one of those. You, yeah, it's, it's. You're still watching, though, right? You're not taking any hard positions. What are you? Um, what are you seeing, and and when does this play out? Yeah, I mean, I often I often tilt my portfolio rather than go all in on an idea, and so I have been and tilted right. towards this reflationary idea, and then the you know the question is how long to press that, how long to to keep pushing that, and for example, I've already dialed back some of the things, like for example, copper you know stocks went straight up, and so you know, kind of dial back things that might be a little bit overdone. But overall, I still have a reflationary tilt to my portfolio. And some of the things I'm watching, I mean, you know, there's kind of the near term and then the longer term. So the near term is we're going to have attractive base effects uh, in the next uh, few months. And so, you know, when when inflation is discussed, what you're generally talking about is the year-over-year consumer price index or, you know, a couple other ways to measure it. Uh, And 
uh, so if you look back last year, the lowest points, uh, you know, for the CPI were that that April and May period, at least for the United States. But that, you know, that you know, I'd assume that would apply for most of the rest of the world. Uh, and so when you're comparing year over year, you know, back when we, we had the data point from February, but the, the, the February 2020 was was still pretty high back then. And so that year over year comparison was still somewhat tough. Uh, but when you look out to uh, the April and May periods, uh, you know, that year over year comparison is very favorable. And so you're likely to get a, a somewhat high headline print. It could be it could be comfortably three percent or more uh, just based on, you know, CPI kind of maintaining its mild upward trend now. And then you could get notably higher than that if that doesn't become as transient as people think. So basically the deflationary uh, case would be OK. You're going to get the base effects. And then it's going to wear off and you're going to go back to normal and it's going to basically all of that inflationary force is going to get eaten by the, the larger deflationary force. Uh, the other way of looking at it is that, uh, you know, they're, they're already talking about more stimulus. Uh, they're talking about the potential for, uh, you know, a three trillion dollar infrastructure bill. And that can that can keep that going potentially for, for longer than people expect. Uh, and as far as you know, people saving it, that's so it's kind of a spectrum, right? So we actually have seen increased saving. And that's why, you know, even though we increased broad money supply by something like 27% year over year, we, of course, haven't seen, you know, 27% uh, average price increases. Maybe in commodities we have, you know, ironically, I mean, many commodities right. are up that, you know, that far, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, broad, broad products are not necessarily up that much uh, in large part because, you know, if you look at, say, personal income in the United States, uh, you spiked above trend, right? So even though we're in a giant recession, people on average had more income than they otherwise would have had. But at the same time, they're they're barred from spending it, right? So they're you know they can't travel as as easily or as comfortably. Uh, they you know they're they're not doing like you know business travel as much. They're, you know, a lot of expenses that they otherwise might have had are on hold. Uh, and as a natural result, a lot of them have saved it. They've they've deleveraged a little bit. Um, and or they they've shifted their spending towards things that are inherently cheaper and more deflationary, like 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 technology, like you know basically uh, you know more streaming packages, but less gasoline consumption, for example. Uh, but as that starts to uh, end, and consumers have quite a bit of you know excess funds, uh, that can move back into the real economy. And so it'll be you know inflation is one of those things that does have a qualitative component to it because you know once once people expect that their money is going to not be as valuable. You know, six months, twelve months from now, they're more likely to spend it. Uh, whereas if they have the perception that prices are going to stay flat or even go down, they're more likely to to wait for certain purchases. Uh, so there is that qualitative component, but I'm mostly watching some of these quantitative uh, under you know underpinnings. So first we get through the base effects, and then we see what's happening with with ongoing fiscal stimulus, as well as watching you know what's happening with energy prices. Is, is OPEC basically uh, you know uh, you know increasing supply? Or are they, you know, staying, uh, you know, pretty disciplined in that time? When you have those couple of variables right, then you then you can have a pretty good handle on what's happening with inflation. Wait, can I just ask a question about the base effect? Uh, I've always been interested in how this actually has any impact whatsoever. Um, it, it really is starting point, ending point. Um, what just so, so the listeners that may have not uh, heard of this before, what is the base effect, and why do you think it? matter so much when it's just simply year over year uh so and yeah this, it's what, single data point can have such a large effect yeah so it's one of those things that it shouldn't matter as much as it does um we should basically look through it and there are you know there are easy ways to look through it you can look at month over month numbers you can look at two-year numbers right so you can factor out that that one-year difference 
Uh, and so those are some of the important things to do when you're aware of the base effects. But essentially what a base effect is, is if you look at CPI over time in not year-over-year terms, you just look at the consumer price index, you'll see it mostly going up as, as like a straight line and it kind of it wobbles a little bit, but it's mostly going up. But if you have a big enough economic shock, you get a little dip and then you, you kind of rebound to it. And if you're going up and you're and then you're 12 months later and you're comparing yourself to where you were 12 months ago, you're comparing yourself to that bottom of that dip. And so if you if you map the chart in year over year terms, it, that that you know that year over year number that you're getting, it's it's going to be reported. You know the April numbers reported in May, the May numbers reported in in you know uh, June. That can look like a pretty big spike uh, in inflation. And so it's one of those things where headline numbers, you know, they, they impact people more than you think. There's algorithms out there, but, you know, a, a well-done algorithm should recognize that sort of thing. But, you know, it, it's all like, you know, I was watching, for example, the, the, when the February numbers came out and people were saying, oh, like, you know, inflation was 1.7%. So it's still low. And it's like, well, yeah, because that's up against pretty decent, you know, uh, uh, base effects. And people still haven't really gotten able to spend uh, a lot of things that, that they had. Uh, and so as you look out, you know, I think the same people that are shocked that inflation is only 1.7% are going to be like, wait, what do you mean it's 3%? Uh, and, and so it's like, well, okay, look forward a little bit and see if it's actually still going to be 3% after we get past the base effects. It might be, it, you know, if you do get enough of an ongoing stimulus, maybe it could be, uh, but if they were to, you know, throttle that back, uh, you know, then you're, then you're comparing yourself to say summer of, 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 you know, late summer of 2020, which, you know, was you were, by then you're out of that dip. And so you have more fair, like, you know, 12 or, you know, 12 month comparisons. Uh, and so first, yeah, it's mainly just like a headline shocker that, that you know, people that, that aren't familiar with base effects could be right. surprised by. But then as you look forward, that's when you get into the, the, the deeper question of whether or not we're going to have, uh, you know, sustained inflation or not. I think it, it actually might be informative. Sort of two things on, on base effect. One is um, the experience the individual has they have a memory that's sort of a year long. So what did I pay for X last year? What am I paying for X this year? And so they're, they're experiencing sort of that one year window in their, in their memory. And I think the other thing is it's been so long since we've experienced this type of environment, that in the collective memory of um, the investing public really has no recollection of how this type of, um, economic regime and environment actually functions and what its implications are for asset prices. So I wonder, Lynn, if you might walk us through sort of that 1930-40 example um, to sort of refresh memories across the board of of how when you get into this ending period of the long-term debt cycle, how things start to function. I've heard you talk about this a few times, and I think um, the listeners would probably really enjoy that history lesson of the 30s and 40s and the attempt at yield curve control and what the implications are for today and whatnot. I think that would be uh, very insightful. Yeah, sure. And, and so one way I'd start by saying is that if you look at, if you go back to the concept of the long-term debt cycle, uh, the, the next you know step of understanding that is to realize that there's, there's really two totally different types of debt. There's private debt and then there's public debt, and they can have very different implications uh, for inflation and, and, and things like that. Uh, and so if you look back in the, in the 1930s and 40s, First, you had a private debt bubble. Uh, and so going into 1929, federal debt as a percentage of GDP in the United States. I use the United States for a lot of my uh, numbers, but if you look at global numbers, most developed markets were generally on the same you know, sequence. Uh, and just magnitudes were different based on, on different conditions at the time. But 
overall, you don't generally see, uh, you know, uh, markets on, on totally opposite sides of this. And so the, these things kind of tend to come in clusters. But uh, so the 1930s, going into the 1930s, the United States has very high private debt. You know, a lot of it was speculative. Uh, a lot of it was farmer debt. Uh, and, and, you know, whereas federal debt was quite low. And then you got that 1929 crash. Uh, and then when you went into the 1930s, started to get bank failures. Uh, you got declining GDP. Uh, and so in that 1932-1933 period is when it really kind of hit the bottom. Uh, and so debt, you know, private debt to GDP was extremely high. Uh, and they did start out with with fiscal, you know, policies. Uh, but you know, in the beginning, they were kind of moderately sized. They weren't they weren't enormous, but they were substantial. Uh, and uh, so the first steps there were to do something kind of like quantitative easing, uh, in the sense that banks had gold reserves and then they had you know dollar-based liabilities. And so one of the things they did was devalue the dollar relative to gold, and that was essentially like quantitative easing, where you you, you basically increase the the amount of bank reserves in the system compared to their, their liabilities. And that helped, uh, you know, stop that, you know, massive destruction uh, that was happening with, with banks going under. And back then there was no FDIC insurance. So if a bank failed, uh, you know, your, your, your deposits were just uh, destroyed. And so unlike, uh, you know, these past few decades, that during that, there was like a several year window where broad money supply actually went down. So there's just less, fewer dollars in, in existence uh, in the broad sense. Uh, but once they they devalued the dollar relative to gold, shorted up the banking system, you basically quickly ended that. You came out of that, and you got that strong inflationary response. And it still wasn't very high inflation. When you, when you look at the decade as a whole, you had outright deflation. Then you overshot a little bit. But overall, the 1930s were not a very inflationary decade. It was it was it was a, a pretty flat decade when you kind of you know tune out the the big the big moves in the middle there, uh, and so. And then, as you got uh, deeper into the 1930s, you had you had substantial uh, fiscal spending, but it still wasn't on a massive scale. Uh, you know, we had, you know, uh, we saw we saw public works projects and things like that, uh, but a lot of it, you know, as a percentage of GDP, was still relatively tame. Uh, and you you got a second recession in the in the late 1930s, uh, and overall, it was just a period of ongoing uh, stagnation. Essentially, uh, you still were not at new uh, stock highs uh you weren't having any sort of roaring economy uh and and well, 1937 was a terrible um equity market right big big down year in 37 yes um and and i think that's when a stimulus package came in is that when the new deal came in oh uh, well that came in a couple different parts uh and so there were kind of different components of that but yeah that was a, another renewed effort uh to basically increase fiscal spending uh, and but also because a lot of the world economy was going through this, of course, you had tensions in Europe. You had all sorts of issues, uh, and and for a variety of reasons that helped contribute to the war that happened in the 1940s. Uh, and so when you had the 1940s, you had you know multiple stagnant economies kind of go into this, uh, and that was a, a catalyst to do absolutely massive fiscal spending. Uh, and so if you look at the the deficits as a percentage of GDP in the 1940s, they they blew away anything that we saw in the 1930s. Uh, and so, you know, you had deficits of, of 20 to 30 percent or more of GDP uh, because it was existential. You're, you're fighting this this all out war. And so but in that environment, I mean, a lot of the spending, even though a lot of the, you know, the combat's happening overseas, a lot of that is you're, you're building things domestically. You're, you're you're you know, if you look at industrial production in the United States, that went up. It went like almost tripled uh, during like a, a period from the very late 30s to like the, the late 40s. 
and even after the war, when it when it kind of corrected a little bit, you know, it still retained most of that. They were able to kind of pivot uh, to to you know putting that those war machines to domestic use. Uh, and so when you, when you had that kind of massive fiscal injection uh, to build up the economy, and when soldiers came home, they got GI bills, so they got like free training, and you know some of them went to college, other ones went to you know basically uh, learned learned a trade. Uh, and so basically, you saw a massive fiscal injection. And during that decade, inflation was, uh, you know, substantial. It was comparable to the 1970s. Uh, but instead of being this kind of steady inflation that kept rising, you had these massive spikes of inflation, followed by like no inflation, like another massive spike. And so if you look at 1942, 1947, and then again, I believe in, in 1951, you had these really big inflationary spikes that were uh, double digits. Uh, and so, but because at that point, the private debt bubble was mostly worked through. So, so you know, the private debt had deleveraged a lot, uh, whereas now you're ramping up the, the, the public debt, the federal debt. Uh, and uh, they couldn't afford to have very high interest rates at that time when, when federal debt was going over 100% of GDP. Uh, and so that was the, uh, the, where they did yield curve control. So the Federal Reserve said, you know, we're going we're gonna to buy any treasury bonds that go over 2.5% yield. Uh, and so that basically set a, a ceiling for what yields could do. And they actually had multiple ceilings. So if you look at the short end of the yield curve, they had a, a limit there. Then the middle of the yield curve, they had another limit. And then the long end of the yield curve, they had 2.5%. Uh, and so what you basically had was a, uh, you know, a moderately steep but artificial uh, low yield curve. Uh, and then inflation was doing whatever it's going to do. And so if you look at if you if you chart inflation and 10-year yields during that during that decade, Inflation is like a wild ride with these double-digit dips and then back down to normal, whereas the two-point, uh, the 10-year yield was just this flat line at 2.5%, completely artificial. They totally overrode the market. And if you look at the Federal Reserve balance sheet uh, from 19, you know, from the from the early 1940s to the mid 1940s, they increased their holdings of Treasuries tenfold. Uh, and overall, you had a very strong nominal GDP growth in part because you had you know pretty massive inflation. Uh, but then also a lot of that was productive. And then after the war, they were able to pivot. Uh, basically, you know, they never really paid off the debt. It's not like U.S. debt, you know, fell dramatically. But they basically held it steady for a while uh, as the economy kept growing. And so through a combination of inflation and real growth, they were able to get out of that that debt trap. Uh, but it was it was a painful time for anyone holding cash for bonds uh, because, say, you were holding a 10-year treasury uh, in the beginning of the 1940s, by the end of the decade, you you know even though you got all your purchasing power back, you made something like 25% because you got 2.5% a year. Uh, but your 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 real your purchasing power in real terms went down by over 30%, uh, and that's that'd be even worse if you were holding cash. Uh, and so overall, that's you know that's I often compare that environment to the the 2010s and the 2020s. Because going in, if you look at the charts of the of the, you know, you separate private debt from public debt. If you look at interest rates and and say the monetary base as a percentage of GDP, uh, you know, a lot of what happened during that that you know, uh, 1930s 1940s period looks a lot like what happened starting with the Great Financial Crisis. So we had this this private debt bubble build up. We saw a massive collapse. Then we saw a ramp up in in the monetary base to basically recapitalize the banking system. Uh, but that wasn't outright inflationary because just like the 1930s, you're just countering a massive deflationary private debt bubble collapse. Uh, and then as you go into the 2020s, uh, you know we had basically a, a pretty slow decade of growth throughout the 2010s. Uh, it was somewhat disguised by 
the massive kind of you know a rise of tech companies we've had. So the stock market did pretty well, uh, and and you know so individual assets did well. We were we were obviously a lot more comfortable than we were in the 1930s, where you had worse technology, you had you know the the dust bowl, you had you know all sorts of uh, issues. But in many ways, it was essentially a mild depression where you had just growth that was way below the trend line. Uh, and then as you go into the 2020s, of course, we had this external catalyst of a virus. And then we saw massive fiscal spending, the likes we haven't seen since the 1940s. And a lot of it was monetized by the, the, you know, the central banks around the world, basically having to buy a lot of the bonds associated with that spending. Uh, and so like the 1940s, we saw a really big ramp up in broad money supply. And so now the question is whether or not, you know, to what extent that might translate into higher inflation uh, in this decade. It sure does, Ryan. Mm, it's a great analog. What what are the uh, what are the differences in the um, initial conditions? Um, are there anything? Are there any significant differences that that you would want to highlight between the '40s and and where we are today? Yeah, there are several of them. One is that demographics were stronger back then, uh, so you had a younger population, a faster growing population. Now, now in most country, most developed countries in the world, you have an aged population and a slower growing population, uh, and then. Uh, Two, um, you know, by then they had actually deleveraged quite a bit of the of the the private debt, uh, and, and even part of that it wasn't necessarily from paying a lot of it off. Some of it was paid off, uh, but some of it was inflated away in the early part of that period. Uh, but mainly it stopped increasing, and therefore it started going down as a percentage of GDP. Uh, whereas in this cycle, uh, you know, if you look at private debt and public debt, you did see a pretty clear bubble happen in that, that you know, 2009 period. And, you know, for example, U.S. household debt went, went down pretty substantially over the next decade as a percentage of GDP. Uh, but it didn't go down nearly as much as it did back then. And so now we're in this period where you have, you know, you still essentially have what, what is a private debt bubble, uh, just less extreme than it was in, in 2008, 2009 uh, in many ways. And then you have on top of that, a much larger, uh, you know, public debt bubble, uh, and so we're entering this period a little bit, you know, trickier because our deflationary forces are larger, and so they, you know, they basically it takes more of a higher magnitude of their actions in order to have a, a you know, inflationary response, and so we're kind of testing the the limits of that. Uh, another thing that's different is that, you know, especially for the United States, in the 1940s, we were the largest creditor nation in the world. So after World War One. You know, Europe owed us a lot of money. Uh, you know, we had a, a trade surplus. Uh, we were the emerging power, uh, and uh, and so uh, and then of course 1940s we we became the you know kind of solidified ourselves as the global reserve currency. Uh, but now in this current system, uh, you know, ever since uh, the 1970s, the United States has been running structural trade deficits, structural current account deficits. Uh, we have a negative net international position, meaning that that you know, unlike back then, foreigners own more of our assets than we own of foreign assets. Uh, and so, you know, currently Japan's the largest creditor nation uh, in absolute terms, whereas the United States is the is the biggest debtor nation in absolute terms. If you look at it as a percentage of GDP, it's a little bit more complex, but the United States is still one of the worst among developed countries, uh, whereas countries like Japan, uh, Germany. Uh, and then smaller ones like Singapore, Taiwan, and Sing and Switzerland, those are all the largest credit nations relative to the size of their economy. And so overall, uh, if you get that that sort of really big fiscal environment, it tends to be more inflationary for the ones that are that are the debtor nations, the ones that are running those more structural uh, current account deficits. And so uh, back then, the United States devalued less than 
many other countries except for Switzerland. Uh, whereas in this environment, uh, in 2020, we saw the dollar go down more than most other developed uh, you know, country peers, although lately we are in a little bit of an upswing. Uh, so overall, my base case is that in the 2020s, if we were to get this analog to continue, uh, the dollar could weaken more than some of the other developed country peers. Can you can you just talk about that a little bit more and 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 connect the linkages between yield curve control and how that manifested in those bursts of what may be considered transient inflation in the 40s and what the implications are for today is that just to help everybody sort of connect the mechanisms together, the how the relief valves roll down if if you know countries decide that they're going to if central banks decide they're going to pursue a yield curve control type of scenario. Yeah, so mostly when and that's one reason I try to separate a long term debt cycle from a normal business cycle because normally what we associate with higher inflation is higher bond yields. So if if inflation is going to go up, we're going to get higher bond yields like we got in the 1970s, uh, and that's going to have certain implications. Uh, but the curveball there is that, you know, in extreme in environments, the, the central banks around the world can override that and say, no, no, I know that bond yields should be higher to compensate, but we're not going to let that happen. Uh, and so uh, that's something I've been writing about for a couple of years now. Uh, but at the current time, it's not even hypothetical. We're seeing, you know, uh, Australia has formal yield curve control. It's not as extreme as the Federal Reserve in the 1940s. So the Federal Reserve that was the, the most pure form of yield curve control, where they, they set the maximum yield of the entire you know, duration spectrum. Uh, whereas Australia is just saying, like, we're going to pin the three-year yield. Uh, and, uh, you know, so they're basically artificially suppressing part of the yield curve. Uh, and Japan's, uh, you know, uh, doing that with their, with their tenure, I believe. Uh, and so, we're, you know, we see these rumblings of yield curve control. Uh, and we see that, you know, over the past year, the Federal Reserve in their meeting minutes has, has cited those. Uh, and it basically says that they, they have that as a, a you know one of the tools at, that is available to them, uh, and they're watching some of those other countries to see how it works out for them. Now, if you go back to 1940s, the Federal Reserve didn't want to deal with curve control. Uh, you know, in fact, they they hated it because essentially what happens is they they you know more or less gave up their independence uh, for that period of time uh, in the face of an existential crisis, uh, and so. Uh, they were basically were co-opted into to indirectly monetizing government deficits. Uh, and then even after the war ended, uh, so the Federal are basically came back to the Treasury and said, okay, we can stop this now, right? And then, you know, the, you know Truman's like, well, you know, we need a little bit more. Uh, and, and so the, there was this kind of ongoing issue. And you, when you finally got that inflation spike in 1951, that's when they said, okay, we have to split this up. We have to go back to, you know, some degree of independence here. Uh, lest we turn into, you know, a banana republic. We have to, you know, kind of regain uh, some degree of market pricing for money. Uh, and so that eventually was able to split. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's very, you know, it's basically one of those things that once you check in, it's really, really hard to check out. And so last time it happened, they were basically locked in place for, you know, about nine years. Uh, and so, you know, if you have a, you know, a large stimulus, uh, one of the ways that that, you know, the, the, the overall, basically if the, uh, effect on nominal GDP can be kind of stunted is if rates rise enough and, and basically make, you know, mortgages unaffordable uh, and basically, you know, put a break in economic activity. And that's where you can get the, the you know, that combination where they say, okay, we're going to do massive stimulus and we're going to cap yields. And then, so if you don't cap yields, the, you know, the release valve is the bond market. So the bond market sells off, you know, yields go up uh, and the currency stays relatively robust. 
uh, and eventually economic, you know, uh, you know, uh, nominal performance kind of tapers off. Uh, whereas if you do a yield curve control, there's no free lunch, and so you prevent bonds from falling uh, in nominal terms. Uh, but the, the the release valve ends up being the currency because if 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 you know if if cur- if bonds are are not able to reprice uh, basically to compensate for that inflation, uh, then they start underperforming very very poorly in, in real terms, uh, and the currency gets sharply devalued. Uh, and you know that then there's other variables to consider. So for example, if your country is running a persistent current account surplus, uh, you know you have a lot of underlying currency strength that that you know you you have to play with. Whereas if your country is running, uh, you know, a persistent current account deficit, and then you suppress yields, uh, you're kind of getting that double whammy of you can have a, a pretty significant downturn in your currency uh, compared to some of the others that are that are on the opposite side of that uh, spectrum. And so that those are some of the variables I'm watching at the moment. We're in the part where you know yields have been on an upswing. Uh, you know, most ways of measuring it, they're they're still negative in real terms, uh, but they're on the upswing, and so that's you know that's helped shore up the dollar. And so the question now to watch is as we get you know, as we go through these base effects, as we potentially go through further rounds of fiscal stimulus, what is the bond market going to do, and what's that going to what's that going to do to the housing market? What's that going to do to the cost of government financing? What's that going to do to uh, you know say highly valued tech stocks? And because the economy is so financialized, that potentially you know uh, forces policymakers to try to suppress yields. And that's where you get into that that other leg, that other release valve potentially taking over. And so one of the things I'm monitoring is the you know the pace of that. So right now, you know I'm not rushing into some of those those currency devaluation trades uh, because we are still on the uptrend in terms of yields and and the Fed so far has not been just like the 1940s. They've been slow to to get into it uh, because they you know they've cited directly that you know, basically they sacrificed their independence if they are basically are forced to cap yields. Well, you know, it's interesting because there's a there's clearly a blueprint to do the uh, yield curve control, and I think I heard a quote that the um, the Fed governor at the time said that the federal government or the federal bank is free of government of government, but not free from government. That is, they they are independent, but if the government wants to do all the things that they want to do, they're not free from ignoring it. And therefore, they're going to have to act, right? So, you know, it's it, that that's actually a written was written in a letter, and it provides a bit of a blueprint for for people to say the same thing today. Uh, federal go- uh, governors of all countries to do it, and uh, and so it's certainly not out of the question. Um, but I, I do want to continue down that path. So, I think what's interesting here when we think about global macro for those for everybody listening here is that we tend to feel like global macro is this long term prediction of what's going to happen in the next 30 years, but really global macro analysts come in all shapes and sizes, right? People that are trying to analyze the next month, the next six months, the next year, the next decade. And I think when from your work, Lynn, I think you're, you're very clear as to your overall framework, but also making sure that you're watching the rates of change of all of these parameters before you position your tilts one way or the other. Um, so you just kind of acknowledge that and, and you're, you're waiting for a, a particular change in the dollar and so on. What would the trades be that you're making in order, like either way? So if we see the federal government come in and put yield control, that means it's inflationary. Uh, you're an equity-focused individual. What is it that, uh, what type of trades would you be looking to put in? So uh, 
it, basically there's a couple major levels. So there, there's it, it, when it comes to the rates question and yield curve control question, some of the, the big ones we have are bank stocks, uh, uh, gold stocks or gold itself, uh, as well as the, the value versus growth tilts or the, the U.S. versus foreign equity tilts. Uh, and so, for example, if you expect an environment where they're going to let yields go up, uh, we're going to have a continued steepening mm-hmm. yield curve. Um, uh, then you're in an environment where you want to be into bank stocks, you know, perhaps, uh, I've been, I've been kind of, uh, you know, uh, somewhat, uh, bullish on them for a period of time here. Uh, you also generally, uh, you know, growth stocks, they've been selling off recently because, because those yields are rising and many of those growth stocks were very overvalued. And so I think a lot of people try to make too absolute of a kind of comparison. They say, you know, uh, in this environment, uh, yields went up and growth stocks uh, did fine, and therefore there's no correlation. Well, it's like, well, it's not that it's not that simple because in previous cycles, for example, uh, growth stocks were not necessarily overvalued, and so they were less sensitive to those rising, uh, you know, uh, rates. Whereas if you're in an environment where everybody poured into growth stocks because there's so much disinflation, yields got so low, they didn't know what else to invest in. So everybody just piled into all the tech stocks. It caused this huge run-up. And then you start to get yields rising. Well, that puts a lot of pressure on those on those valuations. Uh, and so that's what we've seen recently where you have bank stocks doing well, uh, whereas some of those really, you know, those hyper growth names have been have been correcting. Uh, and so as long as that trade continues, you know, gold is is somewhat in a corrective phase, growth stocks in a corrective phase. Uh, whereas value stocks, bank stocks, uh, certain types of emerging markets or foreign equities are, are doing quite well. Uh, I've been bullish on a lot of the base commodities. You know, uh, copper has been one that I've been riding, for example, recently kind of uh, trimming that a little bit. Uh, and so that, that those are the types of trade out I'd, I'd like to see from that, you know, that more rising rate environment. Now, if you were to get a move on yield curve control, uh, you know, banks can still do reasonably well in that environment because they still have a po- you know a positive yield curve. It's not like Japan where they have just a totally flat yield curve. Uh, however, uh, when that yield curve stops steepening, that's less ideal for banks, uh, and it suddenly becomes a lot more attractive for something like gold uh, because gold's closest correlation is uh, real rates. And so, if you look at the ten-year Treasury minus you know either the CPI or the inflation expectations, the the break-even rates. Uh, you know that that is a very strong correlation inversely with gold, and so gold does very very well uh, when uh, real rates are negative. And so if you get that yield curve control environment, where let's say inflation goes to you know four percent and the Fed caps yields at two percent, well now you're at negative two percent real yields, and gold would love that most likely. And so gold stocks or, or gold uh, you know directly held gold uh, can do very well in that environment, as well as uh, some of those other base commodity stocks. And I would actually say that um, you know Stanley Druckenmiller gave a great interview the other month uh, where he talked about he he's kind of viewing it similarly where his base case was higher inflation and then his next question was will the Fed you know intervene with rates or not and so he says if you know if they don't intervene with rates then his his play is short treasuries uh, and if the Fed does kind of come in and uh, you know keep those yields from from getting too disorderly uh, well then he's long commodities because they would benefit from that you know that that more inflationary uh, environment with with more negative real yields, uh, and so that's kind of that's a similar way that I, I approach as well, with the exception that I've been using long bank stocks uh, for some of my like you know basically the, the equivalent of a short treasury trade. It's it's a, a, a play on a steepening yield curve, uh, and you know that that kind of like the copper stocks that might have got a little bit of a head of itself now, 
Uh, but overall, that's that's the type of thing I want to be in if I expect steepening yield curve, rising rates, pretty strong economic growth. Are you looking at uh, you listening to the narrative to, in order to start shifting, or are you looking at technicals with the narrative? Uh, so partially it's the narrative, but mainly it's, it's quantitative data. So uh, you know, basically watching uh, inflation play out, watching the growth of the money supply, watching what's happening uh, in Congress. So watching the the stimulus or lack thereof, uh, and then seeing how that's going to play out in markets, and then watching Fed actions. Say, okay, are they you know what are they going to purchase more to try to suppress yields? Or are they going to let that run? So you have some central banks like Australia or the ECB that have been more explicit about, about their desires to keep the long end of the curve suppressed, whereas the Fed has taken somewhat of a more hawkish tone. Of course, it's all relative. So hawkish in the sense that rates are zero and that they're buying assets every month. Uh, but compared to some of their international peers, they're saying, you know, we like a steep yield curve. We're not going to, you know, we're not that, you know, you can read between the lines that the, they are watching certain levels or watching for certain things to break. Uh, but they're kind of, you know, taking a, a more hawkish stance relative to some of their peers, and that's where you say, okay, you know, at the moment at least, the trend change is 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 higher yields, steeper yield curve, uh, you know, kind of ongoing corrections in growth stocks and, and gold and things like that. Uh, but then, the, you know, if we do to get that pivot, uh, that's when I'd be more interested in, in maybe looking at those growth stocks again. Uh, and I've already kind of monitoring some technicals uh, as it relates to gold and things like that. And so it's that combination of, of some of those trend changes as well as technicals. What do you think is what do you think is one of the uh, biggest misperceptions right now that's occurring in markets in terms of how investors are behaving? I would say that I mean there's a couple of things. One is treating this like a normal business cycle. Uh, that basically that you know that that you can get out of it in a similar way that the previous cycles played out uh, because you know there's there's Basically, there's such an economic impact, and people went into this, you know, with so much leverage. And you know, the bottom 50% in the United States and many countries has basically no dry powder. They have no emergency fund. They they can barely go a month without kind of keeping the lights on, uh, without an income. Uh, and so, basically, that if at any point you were to get that more disinflationary outcome uh, in this environment, that's when you're prone to to civil unrest and things like that. And so, you have that kind of forcing function. That, that keeps the fiscal taps on, in a matter of speaking. Uh, and so that's that's one of the things I'm kind of watching uh, play out. Uh, the other thing is just, you know, people are prone to be pro-cyclical and emotional when it comes to things. And so, uh, you know, uh, you know, back during the, the worst part of the pandemic, people would pile into, to, you know, uh, tech stocks that are doing fine and say, I don't want to touch banks or energy with a 10-foot pole. Uh, and But they got so extremely cheap that, it's, you know, it's like, you say, well, I mean, you know, I don't know, I don't know exactly when this is going to turn around, but it's it's getting to the point where I wouldn't want to not have exposure to some of these things uh, because when they do, that can be pretty strong. And now at the same time, that you know, that the, the the reopening narrative can get so excited uh, that basically you're saying tech stocks are done. I want to just pour mm-hmm. into energy and banks, and it's like, well, maybe, but you can also go back and look at some of the things that are selling off in the other direction to see if there maybe are certain levels. You want to have on your watch list, and maybe start kind of uh, you know easing out of some of those reopening trades. Uh, and so that's kind of how I'm playing it, where I monitor valuations, I monitor rate of change of economic data, and basically just try to not have a knee-jerk contrarian reaction. Not just you know sometimes it's good to ride with the momentum, uh, but be aware when things start to get somewhat heated, and be willing to to shift into some of those out of favor uh, names especially because as an equity investor, you have a, a pretty long time period for that thesis to play out. Uh, and so in some ways, you know, equities are, are some of the longest duration assets. 
And so basically they, they give your, your trade enough time to play out where you're saying, I don't know if this is going to turn this month or this quarter, uh, but it's getting into the zone where it's, it's cheap and it's out of favor enough uh, that I think that when, when these rate of chain, change indicators roll over or roll up, whatever the case may be, uh, that that trade can start working out. I think, I think it's also really important for the listeners uh, to, to be mindful of Lynn's language she didn't say sell everything and buy this one thing. <laughs> she said tilt her portfolio, yeah. right? Which is not to say that you're abandoning all of those other sectors out of hand, but you are tilting the portfolio. So you have a base portfolio that's fairly diversified. And then based on whatever your risk per- parameters are, you will, you will pick an amount that you're going to tilt based on maybe your confidence interval, as well as your comfort with tracking error and whatnot. Exactly. I, yeah, I underweight or overweight certain sectors or certain stocks or certain asset classes based on how attractive they are, uh, you know, with a, with a valuation overlay. So one is just how cheap and expensive they are. Uh, but then part of determining how cheap or expensive they are is expecting what's going to happen with future earnings. And so paying attention to that rate of change indicators uh, to see how that's likely to impact them. Uh, and so finding things that are oversold and cheap and they potentially have that that catalyst kind of rolling up or rolling over uh, is is kind of where this nice sweet spot. My my general approach is I, I ideally like to hold an investment for three to five years or more. Uh, but you know this has been a really crazy you know eighteen month period, uh, and so there are some things I bought thinking you know I'll hold on this for three years, and then it it, it goes up like you know one hundred fifty percent in like six months, and it's like well now it's almost it's so good that it, it's it's all so good that it's bad now. And, you know, you kind of rotate out and kind of clear that a little bit. Uh, And so it's been an unusual environment, but that's generally how I like to approach it. Yeah, way ahead of schedule. What do you do with all that extra time? (laughs) Right. (laughs) I mean, you you didn't expect to earn 150%, for example, in such a short space of time. So, yeah, well, that's on some investments. And so it's one of those things where, you know, the copper stocks, the Bitcoin, certain things like that just kind of uh, flew up. Uh, and there's, there's always parts that you don't get completely right. And so for example, in 2020 going into that, uh, you know, I had a, a decent amount of tech stocks, uh, and everyone's talking about like, Oh, you got to get into the, into the you know, work at home stocks. I'm like, well, don't we all know that now? Isn't that trade done? And it's like, no, no, that, that people will pile into that longer and, and higher than you think. And so for example, I, you know, by the time we got into like summer 2020, I was like, I really should have had more of these things. Like I have some, but I wish I had even mm-hmm. more because mm-hmm. I didn't expect you know, I didn't expect Zoom, for example, to, to go as high as it did. I didn't expect some of those really kind of, really kind of hyper growth kind of stocks that really benefited from this trend to go high as as high as they did. And so, you know, basically, you, you you don't catch everything all the time. But overall, it's trying to have a portfolio that makes sense to you, that is filled with things that you find that are reasonably valued and that are benefiting from the underlying trend. So, so you, oh, go ahead, Rod. I'm going to switch topics. So yeah, I was going to say, she said the word. <laughs> she said the word. So <laughs> she, said, she said the Bitcoin word. Yeah. So we now, we now will so, start the podcast. But, but I'm going to pretend that it's not just a wholesale change. We're going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to tie it into the previous topic. Well, of course we are. Of course we are. Allocation. We're asset classes. Allocation. Mm. Laser eyes. <laughs> um, we are, um, we're, let's tie in inflation to this. So let's assume in a period of, accelerating inflation, what you need to look for is uh, scarcity, right? Gold is a scarce asset, has X amount of production a year. 
It's clearly going to, it's got the network effect. It's broadly distributed. It has the benefit of, of uh, keeping in, in uh, pace with real rates. Bitcoin has a lot of those elements. And, but it has a lot of other elements too. I mean, there's, there's an element of the digital gold aspect, uh, scarcity, and, um, and generally broadly distributed or can become more broadly distributed. And then you have the innovation side of it, which is giving it all of its volatility right now. If we go into a period of deflation, uh, which one wins out here in your view? Like, how do you how do you price Bitcoin in your model? Uh, so, oh, Give well, those I, I think I think even a, a slightly broader question, just to open that up a little bit more, is what are the main um, factors or functions that go into the pricing of Bitcoin in your mind? Land, you're, you're obviously put a lot of time yeah. and thought into this. So, what are those main inputs that that you're seeing, and then how do they? Yeah, it's a really good set of questions, and I view a couple different layers, and it's always tricky to find out which layer is the most important. Uh, but by by having a you know kind of a framework that puts layers, that's, that's how I've seen it play out. And so, for example, the biggest correlation that Bitcoin has is mostly just with its own adoption cycle. Uh, and so, basically, if you look at say say put Bitcoin aside for a second, if you look at a, a really high performing growth stock, it almost doesn't matter if it's in a recession or an expansion. That stock's still growing. It's just doing its its own thing. And of course, the valuation might fluctuate to some extent uh, as because you know market sentiment's going over the place. Uh, but they're going to be less impacted by a recession or, or or an expansion than, say, a bank stock or an energy stock or an industrial stock, right? So, uh, so partially, Bitcoin is you're, you're monitoring the health of that. You know, what does the adoption look like? What what's happening in the industry? Are insurance companies buying into it? What is what are the hardware wallets doing? What are some of the other applications? How is the Lightning Network developing? And so, one is I'm watching the underlying fundamental growth of the ecosystem and the user adoption over time. Uh, and how that's how that's being perceived, and so you know, if you look at the last 12 years of Bitcoin's existence, the tightest correlation is with its own halving cycle. And so, for people that aren't familiar, uh, Bitcoin generates you know a, a, a number of new Bitcoins every 10 minutes on average. Uh, and in the beginning, when it was designed, that was 50 new Bitcoins were created on average every 10 minutes. Uh, and then after four years, that was pre-programmed to get cut in half. And so then it it went to a four-year period where 25 Bitcoins were created every 10 minutes. And then after that, it was pre-programmed and it shifted to 12.5 Bitcoins every 10 minutes. And now we're in that fourth period where it's 6.25 Bitcoins every 10 mm-hmm. minutes. And that's, 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 that's set to continue uh, for the foreseeable future until you basically asymptotically approach no more Bitcoin. Uh, and generally what happens is that you, you know, in the beginning you had a you know big spike up in price, you got a blow off top, and then eventually the, you, the, the, the overall ecosystem finds an equilibrium price where it, you know, it's, it's, it becomes relatively tame by Bitcoin terms where it's, it's in this big kind of choppy sideways pattern. Uh, and that's when you get a supply shock, right? So you get this, you know, the halving cycle comes in and says, okay, well now we're going to cut new supply in half uh, at a time when demand is still relatively persistent. Uh, and then eventually you get that drives price up and that brings in momentum traders. And then that, you know, that fuels an adoption narrative uh, that eventually gets to extremes and has a blow off top, uh, and then it crashes, and then it eventually finds another equilibrium. And four years later, the halving happens again, and there's a supply shock, and then it drives the price up. And momentum traders come in, and you basically we've gone through the cycle about three times. Uh, and so overall, if you look at the the historical chart of the price and log terms, uh, and put the halving times on it, uh, it's a really uncanny relationship. It's it's the closest thing you see to like a clockwork algorithmic pattern, which makes sense because Bitcoin is is an algorithm 
and its its price chart ends up looking rather algorithmic. Now, when you then go to the more micro layer, uh, especially during that period where it's finding a consolidation, so it's not in an extreme you know bull market phase, then it tends to have more correlations with some of these macro factors. And so, for example, when we had the big liquidity shock in March 2020, Bitcoin down went down just as hard or harder than anything else because it's you know it's partly a liquidity play. Uh, it also just tends to benefit from uh, overall risk-on, risk-off behavior. Uh, so it, it generally is a more risk-on asset, especially when it's in that that more consolidation period. Uh, and so overall, what I'm watching now is that it's still largely in a post-having cycle bull market, as far as I'm concerned. And so I watch some of the on-chain indicators to see how that plays out. So, for example, you know, because Bitcoin, because it's an open-source blockchain. Even though you can't necessarily see what individual people are doing, because there's a layer of, of extraction between someone and, and their address, uh, you can still track what's happening with the overall public blockchain to see, okay, what what percentage of coins are haven't moved in more than a year? Uh, what's happening with new coins? Are people selling their coins for a higher price or a lower price than they bought those coins? Uh, and so there's a bunch of different indicators you can watch, and you can compare them to previous cycles. Uh, and so what you see generally during a bull market is that some of the long-term holders, uh, you know, trim their positions uh, into that because, you know, they're up 5, 5x or 10x or more. Uh, they sell to the new generation of buyers. Uh, and if there are times where you start to get a correction during that bull market, a lot of those long-term holders stop selling. Uh, and so that kind of helps solidify the, the supply. Uh, and basically the price has to keep going up if you're going to get those coins out of their hands because a lot of them... They're not holding their coins on exchanges. They're holding their coins in cold storage. So for them to sell means that you know the price has to do something. You know, it could be that they panic and sell, but those are long-term holders, so they tend to be more about looking for higher prices to sell into. Uh, and so there's a very large percentage of Bitcoin that is basically just off the market. It's just in cold storage, and you need to pretty much pry it out of their hands with higher prices. So I watch things like our coins going to or from exchanges on average. Uh, are long-term holders selling, or are they are they holding? Uh, what are some of the extremes? Like if you compare the market capitalization of Bitcoin compared to the realized capitalization of Bitcoin, which is essentially a measure of a cost basis, kind of the average price that all all current Bitcoin were purchased at originally, uh, and just kind of compare different indicators like that to see what's happening uh, within the broader context of what's happening with you know, uh, you know, some of the custodians, what's happening with insurance companies, what's happening with, you know, did, did another company come and say that they're going to put it on their balance sheet or not? Uh, you know, how's the, the you know, development of lightning and some of the applications that make it easier for people to get access to it and to use some of the, the, the other layers that are on top of it. And so that's overall how I approach it. And so, for example, I, you know, when I initially covered Bitcoin professionally back in late 2017, uh, I, I, I passed on it. I, I analyzed it in November 2017. I said, you know, it's it's like 7,000. Uh, it's gone up really far. Um, and I have certain concerns about the, some of the things happening in the ecosystem, like the Bitcoin cash split from Bitcoin. Uh, and said, you know, I said, maybe you can play with a couple percent, but I'd be very cautious here. And so I took no position. And of course, we, you know, you, al- you almost tripled from there. So you went up to like twenty thousand. Then you, then you crashed, and you went down to like three thousand. Then it just underperformed for a couple of years, and it was choppy. Uh, but it was in April twenty twenty where I said, okay, now it's seven thousand again. But it's, but it's in my view significantly de-risked and stronger fundamentally uh, in terms of where it is in the halving cycle, uh, what price action has been recently, uh, and some of the developments in the ecosystem. 
So where do we see it right now? You, you said it was uh, still benefiting from that having cycle, still a bit of a bull. Are you still seeing uh, hodlers go to the exchanges and, and selling? Um, or has that died down a little bit in the last few months? Uh, so it died down a little bit over the past month or so. And so most of the indicators I'm tracking look to be somewhat mid-cycle in terms of the bull market. And so it's less of a kind of a slam dunk in my view than it was back in, in say, spring of 2020 and summer of 2020, where you know you could buy it for 7000 you could buy it for 9000 you could buy it for 10000 12000 uh, so that, in my view, was a kind of a very asymmetric play. Uh, now that you're well over fifty thousand, in my view, it's somewhat less asymmetric. Uh, where you know your your probability of getting ten x gains in the next year is less than it was back then, uh, and, and your downside is somewhat somewhat greater. Uh, and but I still overall my base case continues to be for higher. Uh, you know, unless we see certain signs play out. So if we start making start making lower lows. Uh, that's when it gets concerning. But you know, looking at what's happening with the on-chain indicators, you know, some of the long-term holders have sold into this rally, uh, but still a very small percentage compared to previous rallies. Uh, and then, particularly over the past month, as Bitcoin has been a little bit more choppy, uh, that long those long-term holders pretty much stopped selling and just you know they just kind of kept holding from there. Uh, and so basically, the, they're basically saying that the price isn't high enough for them to continue selling into. Uh, and we also saw some indicators that you know people are, are still essentially refusing to sell at a loss. And so if, if new investors come in at these higher prices and then Bitcoin has a correction, some of them are willing to sell. But once they start selling at a, at a loss, they pretty much stop. Uh, and that that tends to be what happens during a, a bull market in Bitcoin terms. Uh, that you know the only time that you see mass selling uh, for for lower than the cost basis is during those those deeper bear markets. And so overall, I, I think the base case looks healthy. The one thing that's that's kind of different from previous cycles is that you know because Bitcoin was earlier earlier in its like uh, issuance rate, you had the number of coins on exchanges keep going up. Uh, so even during a bull market, uh, you generally had these short periods where coins would leave exchanges, uh, but on average, co- you know, coins or exchanges kept going up. Whereas in this cycle, we're we're something like 15 months into a period of coins just keep coming off of exchanges, and that's never really happened before. And so, in some ways, that's that's more bullish than anything I've seen before. Uh, but it's it's hard to say exactly what that means because we don't have a lot of historical context for that. What, what do you have to? What do you think about the um, recent uh, talk around the energy consumption question about how much energy it takes to produce a coin? You know, with the miners. Yes. So a lot of that is tied to its market capitalization. And so Bitcoin has something called a difficulty adjustment where every two weeks it changes the difficulty of the algorithm uh, based on uh, you know how much hash rate there is on the network. And it basically, if, if Bitcoins are being generated more slowly than expected, uh, it decreases the difficulty of the, of the algorithm and vice versa. And so overall, at the current time, you know, Bitcoin takes something like it's less than 1% of global energy. Uh, and then more importantly, it, it basically is optimized to kind of seek out some of the cheapest sources of energy. And so, for example, there, there are places in China where they have overbuilt electric dams, uh, hydroelectric dams. And then during the wet season, they have a ton of excess electricity. Yeah. And so a lot of Bitcoin miners go there and, and basically are, are pulling off this electricity that would otherwise be wasted. Uh, and so in that sense, it's not competing with other forms of energy. Now, there are many parts in the world, uh, you know, uh, some of other China's provinces uh, where it is, you know, using more conventional electricity, but basically the overall incentive structure of how it works is that it's designed to basically, you know, seek out inefficiencies and find these these places of stranded energy. Another application I've talked uh, talked to people in 
is that you can have, say, flaring uh, where natural gas is wasted, and some of these miners can come in and say, you know, we can just we can just bring a, a, a you know basically a, a a box with miners and put it next to your your mm-hmm. you know your your oil a- assets, and we can we can your your natural gas assets, I mean. And we can just basically, uh, you know, use some of that flare gas and and, it give, and give you back a big portion of the cost. And so basically, what you're doing is you're just you're 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 making use of the gas that would otherwise be wasted. Uh, and so overall, you know, it's something to monitor how much energy it takes. Uh, but compared to gold mining, compared to uh, you know some of these other things, I overall view it as as pretty efficient. And it's another one of those things to consider where. I, I view it like a well, it is a piece of software, but essentially I view it like a software product where it takes a lot of work to make. Uh, but then the difference between giving it to a million people and a billion people is a marginal difference per user. And right. so Bitcoin is one of those things where, for it to exist, is relatively expensive in the grand scheme of things. I mean, it's still less than one percent of global energy, but on, and on absolute scale, it's as much energy as a small country. Uh, but then, as more and more people use it, that doesn't necessarily, you know, uh, scale linearly. With user adoption, it eventually becomes a point where it's like sending an email, where you're you're making you're basically taking no marginal usage of the a platform that already exists, and so that's that's kind of how I view that conversation playing out. Where yeah. there are people on both sides that I think uh, you basically are are not quantifying it appropriately. Some people are saying there's you know there's virtually no energy impact. Other people are kind of saying that every transaction you do blows a hole in the ozone layer, and it's it, the the overall conversation <laughs> is a lot more nuanced than that. Where it's for one, it's not really charging for the most part per transaction. It's really about the fact that it exists, uh, and then two, the fact that it scales a certain way. Where over over time, it uses a, a smaller amount of energy relative to its market cap, uh, but it still does use higher energy up to a certain point. And also, I mean, there, you, there's other areas that are currently using a ton of energy, and we're not measuring. So the, the traditional fiat system consumes a ton of energy. There's servers everywhere in the world to try to make that work, but nobody's talking about that, right? So if we start digging deeper, I think this ESG, you know, uh, narrative has come from the EU to to, to stop the institutions from adopting it too quickly, uh, because, like Lynn said, the incentive structure for miners is not to be in a convenient location where they can mine happily. It's to be in the cheapest location and to find sources that are being wasted. And to co-locate there in order to be able to maximize or to minimize the cost of, of their input. And the major cost of input is, uh, input cost is, is energy. And so you have uh, miners that are going to look for the cheapest energy sources. And grids, uh, power grids everywhere in the world don't operate at 100% of their capacity. They operate at a very, very low capacity rate enough for peak rates. For them mm-hmm. to be able to to deal with the peak energy requirement, right? And so the vast majority of time, there's excess energy that is being wasted. Now you just you can't you can't contain that, and you can't store it. And so you're able to have agreements with these companies, these power companies, where you get the excess energy um, as long as they don't need it. If they need peak energy, then they're cut off, right? So well, well the nice thing is they can they can actually feed back to the grid. Awesome. When peak energy is on and sell to the grid at certain times and then take that power and, and use it to mine Bitcoin. Um, 
So it definitely is a narrative that is a bit uh, still still developing. And I think, yeah. uh, like you said, and both sides have it, have taken extreme positions um, and the moderate the moderate reality will come out soon enough. And it's it's one of those things that goes through cycles. And one of the analogs I compare it to also is is Iceland. Uh, and so Iceland is a country mm-hmm. that has very low electricity costs yeah. uh, uh, due to just their geography and, and their geothermal access. Uh, and so one of the things that they did was say, uh, how can we export this electricity? You know, we can't we can't build yeah. transmission transmission lines across the ocean. But what we can do is find a, a, an industry that is very uh, electricity intensive uh, and use it. And so they, they basically uh, make aluminum out of the ore. Uh, because it's a very electricity intensive process, and so countries will ship them aluminum ore, and they'll and they'll export that finished aluminum, uh, and and so that's essentially what Bitcoin does. Where it's one of the few sources of, you know, basically where you go to the source of energy uh, rather than trying to bring the energy to you. So on on the um, let, let's let's broaden the the Bitcoin um, universe a little bit. And what do you think of the other, um, the other crypto assets like ether and other parts of the network that you're seeing, what your thoughts are on maybe stable coins or, um, products like global strike and, and where, where are you seeing the value chain opportunities uh, for investors and are things outside of Bitcoin, even, you know, stores of value at all? Yeah. So there are a couple of a bunch of questions to get into. So one is, Within the Bitcoin ecosystem, I you know I I know a lot of uh, several of the venture capitalists that that you know basically benefit from investing in some of those companies. And certainly, if you know what you're doing, I think that's a good space to to, to be in, right? So there are, there are lenders, there are you know I think Strike's doing great work. Where basically, for people that aren't familiar with that, uh, they're using the Lightning Network, which is the faster, the, basically the second layer for Bitcoin. Uh, and so. If we take a step back for a second, if you you know one of the biggest criticisms of Bitcoin is that it can only only handle so many transactions per second on the network, uh, and so they say okay, compared to Visa, they can handle thousands of transactions transactions per second. Bitcoin can only handle like ten transactions per second, uh, and so it's it's got that fundamental limitation. But it's not really an apples to apples comparison because Visa is just a layer on a, another system, and so on the on the lower system you have something like Fedwire. Which which deals with which large fewer transactions, and on top of that, you have these these you know uh, non non settlement transactions like Visa, where they handle these these smaller transactions and then they they batch their payments together on on the base layer at a later time. And so Bitcoin is more like that Fedwire system where it's doing irreversible you know uh, you know uh, potentially bigger transactions. Uh, and but on top of that, you can build these faster. Uh, you know, uh, 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 payment networks when you're less concerned with security because you're, you're, you know, you're buying something small rather than doing a massive settlement, uh, but you're still benefiting from that underlying security of the base layer. And so that's what, for Bitcoin, it's called Lightning, but there are also some other ones. There, there's Liquid, uh, and so there's a couple of different uh, scaling mechanisms that can basically make it cheaper and faster to, to do payments. And so one of the applications that, that is benefiting from that is Strike, which says, okay, now Bitcoin's a really kind of liquid, uh, you know, uh, system. It's large enough. It's ubiquitous, ubiquitous enough, and we can do very, very cheap Lightning transactions that are, you know, a fraction of a percent in order to send something. And so one thing they can do is they say, okay, say we want to send money between the United States and Europe, you know, between the dollar and the euro. Instead of you know managing all these different currency pairs around the world, we can treat Bitcoin as a common currency pair, and so we can do dollars to uh, dollars to Bitcoin send them over the Lightning Network, and then do Bitcoin to Euro, 
and all these transactions take place in less than a second, so you have very little exposure to Bitcoin's price. Uh, and so basically, you're using the network more than the asset, and, and just basically using it as a as a underlying payment vehicle. Uh, and so it can be sufficiently abstracted so that the person using the app doesn't even really doesn't even care about the fact that they're using Bitcoin. They just want to convert dollars to euros and 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 then send euros to, to Canadian dollars, and then a Canadian wants to send to Australia. And you basically just have this kind of interlocking thing where the underlying you know common denominator is Bitcoin. Uh, and one of their applications is is for remittances. And so, for example, if you want to send money to uh, you know uh, an emerging market, for example, like say you, you're working in, in in a country, but you have family back in in your in your homeland, you want to send them a small amount of money, you can send it over Strike, uh, and they your family can accept it as stable coins. They can withdraw it from certain types of ATMs. And overall, I'm I'm very bullish on stablecoin volume in general. Uh, that's been a pretty strong uptrend. Uh, and I expect that to continue because that has certain advantages over, uh, you know, traditional banking systems and, and banks are starting to embrace it more. Uh, you know, that and that would go for more of the the reputable type. And so, for example, I'm not exactly a fan of of something like Tether, uh, but when you look at something like uh, you know Circle uh, or or Gemini, uh, you know, those are those are putting out uh, you know more uh, regulated products uh, where you're basically you know you have a dollar. Or another currency, in some cases, wrapped up in this in this in this asset that it benefits from the liquidity of being a crypto native asset. Uh, and when it comes to some of the other protocols, I mean, Ethereum's interesting because it's it's the largest utility protocol. It enables a lot of these uh, stable coins and things like that. I have certain concerns about the fact that it's it's changing its underlying protocol. Uh, it's somewhat less decentralized than Bitcoin uh, in, in terms of say how much control the developers have. Uh, compared to the nodes, for example, uh, it's overall just kind of a a different ecosystem with a different purpose. And one of the ways I view it is that you know, like most things in life, but especially you know, money is one of the strongest network effects. Uh, where you know, if you have just thousands of different types of money, you really it's going to congregate in the top one or the top two or the top three. Uh, and so you know, the vast majority of those coins out there don't really have sufficient network effect. Really, it's you know, in terms of storing value. Uh, even if you're, you're obviously if you're fine with volatility, it'd be more along the lines of Bitcoin. And if you're gonna, you know, do sorts of development and, and kind of, you know, run your stablecoin and run other things like that, it's more about Ethereum. Uh, and so overall, my my primary preference has been towards Bitcoin as an investment. Although I do continue to monitor what's happening with these utility protocols like Ethereum, Cardano, things like that, uh, as well as what's happening in the in the broader stablecoin space and what that means for banks and how that can impact existing. Uh, you know, companies that that you know either have to adapt to it or potentially are at risk from having some of their market share taken. Do you think that's that's a that's a uh, a real threat yet? The the actual banks and banking systems and profitabilities via um, the 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 Bitcoin revolution. So not not currently. I mean, so, so for example, there's over five hundred trillion dollars in assets worldwide, of which Bitcoin is one trillion. Uh, and then the rest of the crypto is you know, maybe another half a trillion. Uh, and so it's still a very small percentage of global assets. Uh, now, that the thing to watch out for is that it's it's been exponential so far, right? So, you know, people people talking about a trillion dollar Bitcoin is, I mean, that sounds like unbelievable to people like three years ago uh, or even a year ago. Uh, and so uh, if, if that, if Bitcoin basically continues to add zeros, uh, you know, my base case is it'll slow down over time. Uh, but if that gets up to a, a $5 trillion asset or a $10 trillion asset, that, that starts to become pretty meaningful 
you know, in the, in the global scheme of things. And so overall, I, I view it, you can also separate store of value from medium of exchange. And so as a store of value, putting a couple trillion dollars in some place doesn't really affect the banking system. Uh, but overall, they have, you know, they have started to adapt to some of the stablecoin uh, things that are happening, uh, losing out on some of that, that payment processing uh, volume they could potentially get. Uh, and so, especially in the, in the, in terms of low fees for sending international payments uh, and where people want to have their money, uh, that I think has been impactful. And so, for example, you know, you have something like Square, uh, where you can, you know, you have this account, you can buy Bitcoin on it, you can now send Bitcoin to another Square account, Cash App account, uh, and so you have that competing with some of the traditional banking systems. And so, overall, I do think that's pretty relevant in terms of, especially in terms of attracting. Uh, younger depositors uh, and, and and establishing you know banking relationships with uh, younger consumers overall. Lynn, fantastic. One one uh, what what happens when all of the Bitcoin is mined? What's the like once the the mining business is done with Bitcoin? What's the what is the future beyond that? So that that point is mostly fees, uh, and so one is that. The last Bitcoin won't be mined for about a century, uh, but it's it's already at the point where you know 18 and a half million out of the 21 million have been mined, so it becomes asymptotically smaller. And so the short version is that miners, you know, they they have two sources of revenue. One is they get the block subsidies, which is the term for the new Bitcoins that are created every 10 minutes, but then they also get fees. And so let's say, for example, you know, the, a new block comes out every 10 minutes, but it can only hold so many transactions. Let's let's call it 3,000 transactions. Well, if 4,000 of us want to transact in that 10-minute period, uh, you know, t- a thousand of us are out of luck. And so, how how do the miners choose who they're going to organize into that block? And and mostly it comes down to what is the fee that they're willing to pay in order to get towards the front of the line. And so, if I, you know, there are some really large Bitcoin transactions. I mean, there are like there are like 500 million dollar Bitcoin transactions where someone pays like 10 bucks in fees to to send all that. Uh, but let's say I'm trying to I'm I'm trying to send someone a hundred thousand dollars. You know, I, I'm willing to pay a, a feed in order to make sure that goes through quickly and securely. Uh, whereas if I was trying to send someone, you know, three hundred dollars, I, I might want to say, well, you know, we can we can wait a little bit until the the network's not as congested. I want to keep that fee low because I don't want to pay a twenty dollar fee on a on a three hundred dollar transaction. Uh, and so fees are the way that the Bitcoin uses to make sure that the more important and, and generally larger transactions have priority. And so what miners do is they optimize it based on their revenue. They say, okay, who's willing to pay the most fees uh, for the complexity of the transaction? And then they go ahead and, and implement that. And so over time, you've had the transaction fees become a larger portion of miner revenue, although they still are a pretty small portion of miner revenue. And for Bitcoin to be successful in the long run, and this overall, I, I had an article on this because I think this is one of the bigger risk factors for Bitcoin. It, at least it's something that it has to navigate successfully if it's going to continue to be successful as it has been, is it has to keep increasing its fee market up to a certain point. Uh, and so, you know, uh, basically as you get into the, say, the late 2020s, that's where the block subsidies are, are pretty small. And by then you really want to see a pretty, a pretty persistent fee market. Right now, the fee market is somewhat irregular. Uh, and it really kind of comes out during these these big bull markets, uh, whereas during bear markets, the fees tend to be pretty low. But if you get more and more adoption, uh, while that base layer only can do so many transactions, then you can get to a point where there's kind of a, a permanent fee market. Uh, and Bitcoin really has to reach that that level 
uh, if it's going to be successful long term. That's fascinating. Amazing. Well, well, it's been it's been uh, <laughs> quite a bit of time here. We uh, we have what, are we close to your closing questions have, up here? Yeah, we have one more question, which is a would you rather question. Um, would you rather spend a week in the past or a week in the future? And why? That's tricky. I mean, I guess if, if you're talking in, in terms of financial podcast, if you spend a week in the past, you can go ahead and you can buy Bitcoin at $2. You can invest in Amazon and Apple. You can <laughs> you know do things like that. If you know the future... Then you can come back and invest in whatever's going to become the next Apple, Amazon, and Bitcoin, and, or you know you can you can you can check. Okay, is Bitcoin going to be like ten trillion dollars? Is it not? Is it you know you can you can go back and say uh, you know what is the what is 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 Roku going to be the next you know Microsoft? Is you know, what's what's going to happen with some of these big tech stocks? And so really, you could financially you could make use of either one, obviously, uh, depending on on when you want to experience the benefits from that, uh, and then so. I'd have to say the future. I, I guess I do the future. I've already experienced the past. And so I guess going to the future and the shaping, coming back to shape some of my decisions about that future is probably the way I'd go. But I, it's certainly a case for either one. <laughs> for sure. It's not the easiest. Love it. That's great. <laughs> not an easy question. Yeah. When you, when you actually start to think about it. Yeah. It's a little brain teaser yeah. <laughs> to finish things off. Well, Lynn, thank you so much. And uh, I will remind uh, everyone who has made it to the end that, um, you know, Lynn uh, Alden Investment Strategy.com is where you can find Lynn's work. Um, and it is, uh, as you can tell from the, uh, the podcast video interview, whatever, however you're interacting with this, her knowledge is both broad and deep. And um, we encourage you to uh, interact with, uh, with her service and, um, and uh, also probably write a review on this particular podcast and smash a like button and share it with your friends as well. So I think that would help us all. Yep. Thanks so yeah. much for having me. I really, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Lynn. Certainly a fun one. Thank you, Lynn. Yeah. Us thank too. You thank you. Time. Fascinating. Thank you. Thank you.